everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold, the original Gerber baby. You're very old. <laughs> that was actually Richard Nixon. Okay. Wait, no. That was the rumor for a long time, that the original Gerber baby was actually baby oh, I, Richard Nixon. I think, I think it's I not true, once. but that was persisting for it, a while. It's like when people said that like Marilyn Manson was that kid from Mr. Belvedere. No, it was, it was the Wonder Years. It was the act that he was the actor from the Wonder oh, Years. Oh, I had heard Mr. Belvedere, so that had already mutated. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. By the time it got to me, um, yeah, this is We've Got Mail. You control the conversation right here at We've Got Mail. You write us in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address, and uh, we read your emails on the air as many as we can get to. Mm-hmm. Um, real fast. Uh, sorry, this episode's uh, been delayed. We took a little break for the holidays. And then this week, well, you what see are, the news? No, what happened today? Stuff. St- some stuff happened. Stuff. It's stuff. kind of an eventful week. A lot of people <laughs> just needed some time off to deal with it. Also, I had food poisoning, so oh, that was I'm fun, so too. Um, yeah, a little bit of Star Trek insurrection ourselves. So we like uh, we just jumped into the new year saying, like, we're gonna just going to get on top of things and be on schedule and everything's going to be great. And then, blah, and then the whole world went, blah. <laughs> you barfed and the world barfed with you. <laughs> oh God, it was my fault. <laughs> anyway, we apologize for that, but let's just jump right in because we got a lot of catching up to do. Whitney, where's our first letter from? Our first letter is from B. Peterson. Yay! And now B. Peterson had an ambition uh, at the beginning of the year, mm. beginning of 2020 to write us 100 letters in a year. That's, that's, you know, uh, averaging almost two a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the 99th. The, and so, we got the 100th later. And we got the 100th. Yeah, so right. I, I, think, I think we'll be hearing from B. Peterson twice this episode. I think that's fair. Um, yeah. But uh, letter, letter number 99. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Rockmeister Cool, this is the 99th letter. Uh, it is also the fourth letter I drafted all the way back in January, but it never got around to writing it because it was too difficult to put into words. As it turns out, it took m- a few more words than usual. Whitney, this letter is taking you to task. On your position on a film you mentioned as part of your favorite films of 2019, I hope it's clear by this point that I deeply respect you as a critic and as a human, but the following is not a criticism of you, it's just that you're wrong on this one, as is most everyone else who enjoys this film. Gaspar Noe's Climax is abhorrent, racist, cinematic vomit, full stop. Wow. <laughs> I don't really disagree with that. I don't really disagree with that. You know, I understand. I understand that point of view. Yeah. Um, setting aside the presentation of the film for a bit, on the surface, Climax is commenting on racism. A white woman essentially poisons a diverse group of people, and the darker the skin of the individual affected, the worse the ensuing chaos that affects them. By the time the film ends, black and brown people are left in tatters, if alive at all, and the white woman gets off scot-free. Oh, I don't think anybody gets off scot-free in that movie. No, she, um, they, they, they get off scot-free. They, is there think, any implication that they don't? Uh, I, I think they're all pretty much insane by the end of that movie. But anyway, I disagree with that. Uh, however, from the outset, Climax undermines that text. Even before everyone starts having their bad trip, uh, the premise, by the way, of Climax is the first half is like a dance film. People are shooting some sort of dance video. Yeah, and they're doing this there's, big rehearsal. Yeah, there's and like there's a... interviews with people who are like, well, how they got into dancing and how much they like dance. And mm. then uh, they're going to follow the dance with a party. And the first half is just pretty impeccably choreographed. There's a really cool one shot of just everyone dancing. Mm. The music's great. The dancing's great. And then after Mm. a while, everyone starts just chilling out, partying. And then very gradually, people realize, if they're conscious enough to do so, 
that someone spiked the the punch with acid mm. and people start doing horrible yeah, things uh, and, and people and start like, dying. like a lot of acid like yeah. a hell of a lot like everybody's going like insane kind of levels of acid yeah and Would, and it's not like in that Terry Gilliam way where we get to see the uh, the hallucination from inside. Mm. We just see their aberrant behavior. Yeah, we're we're the sober one at this party, yeah. and boy, does that make it just extra yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah, um, it's those with the. You'll find it. At, uh, and once the drugs do hit, it's the darker skinned people who not only are treated worse, but who commit worse acts of violence, sexual violence, etc. Yep. If Climax's argument is that the treatment by white people of non-white peoples makes non-white people become worse people, then this film is espousing racist ideology, specifically of the assimilationist variety. And if Climax's argument is that is anything else, it fails to convey it and presents instead racist imagery for our viewing pleasure. Back to the presentation, Climax is torture to watch! Is that the point? It has to be. But what is it in service of? Showing the danger of drugs? Then it's a pretentious scare film. And I mean pretentious in both the sense of it based on pretense and unbearably turgid. It is in the service of showing horrific... Is it in the service of showing horrific violence within us all? Then since certain types of people are apparently more violent than others, it's a pretentious racist spit in the face. The worst part of my experience with Climax was not the film itself, which was so grating that at one point I chose to get out my phone and headphones and to blast Beethoven's piano sonatas into my ears. (laughs) Instead of walking out of the screening, the worst part was the conversation that followed with my cishet white male peers from film school. They loved it. And not only did they love it, they held it up as the kind of film they wanted to make. It didn't matter that I tried to explain how problematic the film was. They didn't see the problems, and therefore the problems didn't exist. And even if they did, the film was so brilliantly made that I shouldn't care. Mm. Uh, Climax, oh, that was, part I yeah, Climax is one of the best shot films of 2019. It's astoundingly gorgeous. It has, uh, it's one of the best edited films of 2019. It's incredibly visceral. It has stunt work and choreography that puts everything else released that same year to shame, but it's also the worst film of 2019. And no film had worse ideas as well as tried to hide them behind self-righteousness and pompous aesthetic more. Uh, one last thing before my question. You both seemed curious as to why I chose the 1920 film Within Our Gates to be my U.S. film on my makeshift syllabus. This is what we uh, oh, talked we about a couple yeah, uh, episodes episode ago. Two, yeah, yeah. Uh, Within Our Gates was directed by Oscar Michino, a black man, and is considered the first, quote, race film and is hmm. the sort, of resp- a sort of a response to Birth of a Nation, ah. exploring the horror of white supremacy in the United States at the time. You should check it out. Definitely. We will. Thank see you very that. much. Yeah. yeah. And on my question, Gaspar Noe is obviously a niche, <laughs> but if stuff like Climax, which hides ugly ideas behind virtuosic filmmaking, ends up uh, influencing future filmmakers, it will almost certainly be a negative influence. In your opinions, which filmmaker or filmmaking styles has the potential to inflict the most damage on future cinema through their slash its influence? And just to end on a more positive note, who could bring about the most positive effect on the future of cinema? Thank mm. you. See you in the next one, B. Peterson. Yeah, there's... um. Regardless of where you stand on on the climax, I know Whitney mm. cared for it, and I had mm. basically the same reaction B. Peterson did, which is, it's it's virtuosic, but mm. in service of a such a particular and frankly racist kind of ugliness that mm. I couldn't appreciate no. the the quality of filmmaking on board, and I think that there is a certain critical philosophy that says if a movie is well made enough it doesn't so much matter what it's about and i don't i think that it doesn't matter how well made it is if it's in service of something that's inherently Mm. ugly and bad and and it's also comes and i think the other half of that i think this also affects midsummer of not midsummer why did i say midsummer climax Uh, climax of it they were i think they were the same year i think maybe so um 
but I think the other thing is that some people think that if a movie is fucked up enough, it must be good horror. Mm. And I think that there is oh. definitely a way to have ethical horror mm. that that is still visceral. That is still visceral and that still can like scare people mm. on these levels that yeah. can use uh, hot button difficult topics yeah, and was... feel very confrontational and not feel like they're pulling any punches while still not perpetuating a, a mindset that isn't necessarily being challenged by the film. And yeah, that's the thing I think they're... Climax does is it just goes for it. Yeah, it just says a... if you gave everyone acid, the people who aren't white will be according to this film, worse. And that's repulsive. I, I saw the film as just brazenly misanthropic. Uh, I, I don't think any race was targeted in this movie. I think everybody was sort of driven mad. People are like, there's de- like a one really horrifying death in this movie that was uh, perpetuated by uh, like a mother. Oh yeah, that uh, one. That one's horrible. That, that's like, yeah, that's, that's a really that's horrifying true. thing. But that's a different um, kind of, that, that's the different mm, thing. But yeah, fair enough. Yeah, um, yeah I think, I actually looked up a little bit about Climax. I wanted to know a little bit what Gaspar Noe wanted to say about it. And he said that it was, as B. Peterson uh, pointed out, a drug film. And he was not trying to uh, tell you the sort of scare message that drugs are bad. He was trying to say that, like, drugs are the apocalypse. Like, he was trying to push it to such an extreme that not it didn't become absurd, but he was trying to, he was really fascinated by dance culture and wondered why drugs was a part of it. Mm. It was told by like this alien who didn't really understand what drugs were and was trying to show uh, like what the, what the overall effect of having this as part of the dance culture was supposed to do. At least that's what I was taking from what Gaspar Noe was saying. Um, what can I say? I like repellent cinema. I like yeah. films that, that kind of drive you out a little bit. Uh, there's this notion that in order to enjoy a film, you have to uh, understand a protagonist or feel sympathy for one of the characters or uh, feel some sort of personal edification yeah. in order for it to be grand art. That somehow it needs to be reassuring uh, in some way. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I'm very fond of the filmmakers who are... Uh, staunchly against that notion. Right. That try to, uh, rather than pull you in, to drive you out. Right. And I, I might, feel like Gaspar yeah. Noe is an intelligent enough filmmaker that he mm. can he can do that without seeming like, you know, uh, sophomoric about it. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think that, I, it's, I think that it feels sophomoric. It's just yeah. that it feels, again, I think the word I would use oh. is, and again, maybe it's purely subconscious. Hmm. Uh, maybe it. you could even, if you wanted to, you can make the argument that it was an accident that the movie comes across the way, but this is not a unique take. I've seen this take. Yeah. I had this take. A lot of other people I know have had this take. It doesn't seem to be the majority opinion, but it is, Hmm. it's not like an, an unusual read. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's worth noting. And I think that again, repellent cinema can be fine, but again, I, I, I just, adhere to the idea that you can be repellent and still feel ethical. And that's the mm. thing that, again, I, I'm very concerned about the way we sort of subtextually handle these mm. kinds of topics, particularly in stuff like horror, where every life and death is on the line. Horror is, it can be a very judgmental genre. Mm. Um, it Very, very often the horror genre in some regard uh, you know, people bad things happen to people in the horror genre. Sometimes mm. the most the worst possible things you can ever imagine, and the majority of the time, 
there's some justification for it. Usually it's wildly out of proportion, mm-hmm. but usually they did something to deserve it. You know, they were a bad parent yeah. or uh, they killed a guy once mm. or they picked up a hitchhiker. They did something they weren't supposed to do. And so when we see bad things happen or we see people behave in ugly, monstrous ways mm. in a horror movie, it's very common to immediately default without thinking of it to this is the movie creating some sort of judgment. This is the moral of the story. Exactly. And I don't think that's an unreasonable read. Mm. And I think that's something that if a filmmaker is making a horror movie or something within the horror sort of mm. uh, uh, orbit that they should be thinking about. I think that's 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 relevant. Yeah. Um, but Sergio, what are you doing, buddy? We're, we're getting a visit. visit Sergio. Sergio is just trying to join us. He's hello. Are you are you a fan of Gaspar Noe? Yeah, no, I guess not. <laughs> no, oh, I, no, no, he's not. <laughs> okay. No, I, I didn't see Gaspar Noe's Love, and I heard that one was really uh, just boring. Like it, it, it was sort of sensational because it features real sex on camera. But uh, I heard it was. It's also like nearly three hours long and kind mm. of insufferable to sit through. Ah. Uh, and but I was very fond of Gaspar Noe's Enter the Void. I think ah. that's a, a wonderfully stylized movie, and I I can kind of th- this is one of those cases where I I feel like I'm in the head of the filmmaker a little bit more because I know their previous work. Uh, so maybe my view of climax is a little bit slanted. Yeah, I mean, uh, like again, if, you, I, if you're I looking at it in one in. context, that might help. But if you're looking yeah. at it like in a vacuum. But then again, I, I think I in vacuum it, counts. You never know what movie's going to be someone's exactly. first. But but I, I appreciate that uh, it started out as one thing and turned into something that it was just so viscerally abhorrent mm-hmm. that uh, I, I kind of dug on it a little bit. I uh, like just, apocalyptic just I, cinema. Just because I, I, like I just liked those extremes. That's I, what I was responding well, to. That's actually, um, and this is a different film, and I would it's nowhere near as virtuosic, but mm. I actually like it better uh, for what it does uh, in this vein. I actually uh, really like the movie Needful Things, because mm. it starts off with this small town that's relatively idyllic. Everyone's problems are really like mm. simple yeah. and easy to resolve. This could be a Hallmark movie. And by the end, people are literally running through the streets, murdering each other, like mm. everyone in town. And it's hard to pin down exactly when that happened. Yeah. And I like that. I think that's genuinely terrifying mm-hmm. to see that happen on screen. And it's um, just to watch civilization collapse, not because of one inciting incident. Oh, no, everyone mm-hmm. got a brain parasite well, and whatever. Ne- ne- like, things. The devil moved into the devil, town but, and was tempting but, people. But True, I, I but understand. the devil is making is basically giving everyone uh, would, an excuse. Im- imagine uh, needful things without needful things in it. Well, it's still the, drugs. Pardon? The climax is still drugs. It's still doing drugs it. My point is, yeah. still, there's some, some sort of inciting incident. Yeah, yeah. is my point. Um, like a, regardless, I'm not saying it's that like a, much different fact, than climax. Oh, in I'm fact, just you know, it's there is thing. a movie kind of like Needful Things without Needful Things, the shop in it, and mm. it's uh, Michael Haneke's The White Ribbon, oh. which is about the sort of moral decay uh, that is born of simple little acts of resentment and uh, punishment of like unfair punishment of children that eventually kind of grows into full blown fascism. Okay. And it's just the way the people react in this town. There's no real inciting incident. Yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff that, terrifies that me. Yeah. Because that's, you know, hmm. the argument of that film is that's what's in our nature. Uh, regarding the last part of the email, uh, regarding uh, filmmakers who we are concerned will be setting bad uh, hmm. uh, templates for other people to follow, uh, I'm really hesitant to 
point a finger right now because it's so hard to say what's going to connect over time. It mm. really is. You never know, really, like what's going to be the one thing that lingers. Even like the most famous things in the world don't necessarily have a huge influence. And sometimes mm. small art house movies, like for example, Climax, have uh, uh, such a rigorous fan base amongst people who make movies, even mm. if they don't necessarily hit the mainstream, uh, that they have this incredible influence like mm. i've lost track of how many filmmakers i know who said they were influenced by isoy cuba yeah you yeah. know but that's a movie a lot of people haven't even heard of mm. but the camera work in that movie is astounding see i am cuba by the way it's yeah. like an excellent movie yeah but like that's one where like a lot of filmmakers are influenced by it but a lot of people who aren't filmmakers don't even know about it yeah. so it can be difficult to say that and it's also i think you know i could there are filmmakers who i worry about you know, mm. like, again, because it's all a matter of, are we taking the right lessons? Like, mm. let's take, for example, someone with a very pronounced style and a very huge fan base. And I have no idea if they're going to be influential over time. But let's take someone like Zack Snyder, who has uh, a very was, definite uh, style. Going to think of Zack Snyder, uh, particularly the film 300. Sure. Um, yeah, he, he makes these boldly artificial movies. He has a, a signature look to all of his mm. movies. He has an uncanny eye I mean, for composition. He makes really dynamic compositions. Yeah, like uh, yeah. If, if you're looking for a really pretty digital desktop background, he's mm-hmm. got, got you covered. Yeah. Um, Aesthetically, he's an incredibly impressive filmmaker. Just, just purely aesthetic. Yeah, and I think if you're uh, looking for just pure aesthetics to, mm. to influence you, Zack Snyder is an interesting place yeah. to look. But if you look at something like 300, he's clearly not privy to the fact, or maybe he is, that that film celebrates fascism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reveals itself at yeah. the end to be a fascist propaganda. Like, yeah. that's the whole point, is I'm telling the story hmm. to be propaganda. That's the literally problem, why it was told that the way. Problem that's was, the problem was... That's it, in the script. If that was, uh, like, a bookend device that we revisited throughout the movie, and it wasn't as stylized as the rest of the movie, that would have read. It would have sold real well. Yeah. And like, it would have taken the we, curse We keep coming back, and we see, like, just these natural, like, actual, like, on location shoots out on a beach and he's sort of yeah. telling a story and then you know the battle of Thermopylae started yeah. and then we cut back and it's all Zack Snydery. like yeah that would have made a lot more sense he's clearly embellishing this yeah that would have been a good movie in fact I think it would have been I think it would I think mm. you would have still had all the cool stuff that we like the action in that movie is incredible mm. but it would have you know again the ultimately what we're not looking at when you focus that much on aesthetics is you're not necessarily even if it's in the script, mm. you're not necessarily bringing that out. And that's something that I'm very frustrated by in Zack Snyder's movies, where mm. it feels like there's so much emphasis on making everything seem and look epic, which it does. Mm. There are shots of Batman and Batman v Superman, which are absolutely awesome and uncanny, and I wish they'd been in every Batman movie. They're really cool looking. But there's so much emphasis on that that he's not really telling the story very well. And it's like that old story you tell about the movie Bad and the Beautiful, where if every Mm. shot looks amazing, there's no narrative contrast, Mm. and the story ends up not being told very well. If if I do that, every shot in my movie is a climax, and that's a terrible way to tell a story. Exactly, which brings us back to the movie Climax. Um, (laughs) Well, movie 300, anyway. Uh, What lessons are people learning? Well, people are learning that aesthetics are more more important than content. Yeah, and as long as as you state in the script that you have a theme, it doesn't matter how you convey it. Mm -hmm. Now, you can totally watch those movies and appreciate them and not learn that lesson, but it's something that could happen. Mm -hmm. Then again, I don't know. I'm trying to think of, like, what's, like, a good movie? Think of what's a really good movie that a lot of people like that people, that might be influential. Uh, that we that we both really appreciated. Uh, how about Fight Club? 
Okay. Uh, I was trying to think of if I, I, Fight Club's a little bit more like controversial, but yeah, well, that, that's why I picked it. Uh, well, I was I was trying to pick a film that is maybe a little bit more celebrated, but maybe people take the wrong lessons from it. Okay. You know, like um, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Like, let's say it's a wonderful movie. I think it's one of the best movies of the last ten years. Oh, absolutely. And it would be really weird, but not unheard of, if like what people take away from it is people love to watch people paint. Hmm. And they're like, okay, yeah. that's not really what you should have taken from that well, one, but you know. I, I remember when Mother, uh, the Darren Aronofsky film, kind of tanked the way it did and yeah. got these like really bad cinema score for whatever that's worth. And uh, I was having a conversation with a friend about what what would have happened if Mother was like a one hundred million dollar hit, like people mm-hmm. just flocked to see Mother. And then we had a bunch of copycats. Yeah, and yeah, what what would the copycats look like? And you know, is the lesson studios need to take risks on these weird art films, like these biblical freakout movies, or are we just going to see more movies with dead babies in them? It's like you know, there's there's a. Uh, there, people always take the wrong lesson. Yeah, you can never really be sure, and that's why I listed Fight Club because I think a lot of people uh, look at Fight Club and see that Tyler Durden is the hero of the piece mm-hmm. when he's actually the villain of the piece. Yeah, and the film is actually equating old world uh, toxic masculinity with fascism. Yeah, like that the two things are but, inextricably linked to one another. But I think David Fincher kind of fell into a similar trap where because it's so stylized. It's so stylized. Yeah. The whole movie is so cool and Tyler Durden's message is so convincing that yeah, a lot of people get it. Also, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't and maybe if you're trying to make a point, your point should be a little clearer than that, yeah. especially the main point. Yeah. And so I think it's fair to criticize something like Fight Club, but stylistically it's fucking awesome. Mhm. So, um, again, I'm always fascinated by people who just, you know, they gain things like style or vibe, and they're not really looking at the way people tell a story. And so yeah. well, I just hope that future generations of storytellers, not just filmmakers, look at mm-hmm. the way that the decisions that they like, the way that the aesthetics that they enjoy are actually helping or in some cases hindering the story. Because there are very few filmmakers, no matter how good they are, who've never made a mistake mm-hmm. or have never done anything that couldn't have been done better. So... It's important to question, and it's important to yeah be influenced. Everyone's yeah. influenced by the people they admired or grew up with, or mm-hmm. made inspired them to like the movies. But um, yeah, and, and we don't need a lot of adherence. No, you know, we don't need acolytes. We need people to do their own thing. Yeah, I think. And and, uh, and we need different kinds of stories. Um, yeah. uh, all the time, all, all the time to yeah. to stress this point and said this sort of thing before is we need more diverse voices in filmmaking, yes. and we're I feel like we're teetering on a, we're a good place we're like we're not, we're not there yet no. but we're faced in the right direction yeah we're, we're so, finally uh, making some so some strides we're gonna yeah. have a lot more women in the future we're gonna have a lot more queer filmmakers we're gonna have a lot more filmmakers of color we're gonna have a, we're gonna have bi- a, a whole generation of non-binary filmmakers Ugh. that's gonna be really interesting it's gonna be exciting where yeah. does the uh i think b peterson even brought up what what is the difference between the films with a male gaze and films with a female gaze if it's made by a non-binary person. Yeah, we've talked uh, about that in a previous episode of We've yeah. Got Mail, and that's a really fascinating question. And, and, and I want to see that. Please, I want that to be I want all of these of the voices to be part, yeah, part yeah. Of, of the cinematic firmament. And I think that's what's exciting to look forward to, is to get all these stories. Anyway, yeah. we've talked a lot about this letter. Uh, we, we have, yeah. and we're going to get to another B. Peterson letter before we're yeah. done. So we need to, we need to move on. Mm. Uh, but like people who would, who would be good influences down the line. I don't know. Pick a, pick a good filmmaker. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of good ones yeah. out there. Chloe Zhao. Cool. Uh, Chloe Lynn Sh- Ramsey. 
Lynn, Lynn Ram- well, Lynn Ram- Ramsey's been working since 99. It's but, still, uh, still influential, I, I feel. So. I'm maybe not new, I I'm, guess. I, I wish you were more prolific. That's yeah, all. me oh, yeah. too. That's she, true. She's only made a couple movies. All right, moving on. Uh, here's a letter from Paula. Hello, Paula. Uh, Merry Christmas, guys. Merry, oh, um, Merry Christmas. This, Slightly this, belated. This is a letter from Christmas Day. Um, I just wanted to stop and say thanks for starting off my Christmas right. Last night, as I was getting ready for bed, I was scrolling through my phone for something to listen to and came across your Cancel Tucson episode on the 100 Lives of Blackjack Savage. Yes! <laughs> Yes! I couldn't think of a single thing that would make me happier in that moment than falling asleep chuckling to your commentary, which is exactly what I did. Then, early this morning, I was started, startled awake by an epic thunderstorm and needed something to calm me back down. That's when I saw your new Yule Log commentary. Yay! Since so much about this holiday season has been so depressing for so many people, I just wanted to drop a note thanking you for my Christmas, getting my Christmas off to a happy start. The little things matter, and you two made my day brighter. I'm thankful for you, Paula. Oh, it's just a thank you. Well, That's well, lovely. Thank yeah. you for that. That makes, that makes me feel a lot better. Hmm. Um, thank you. Uh, well, happy holidays to you. We're glad you we we could help. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad the 100 Lies of Blackjack Savage episode uh, lingers on. If you don't know what we're talking about, <laughs> I will take any opportunity to talk about this because this is one of the weirdest things we've ever discovered, and that somehow nobody else is talking about to this day. <laughs> In the early 1990s, Disney TV super producer Stephen J. Cannell or Cannell. And uh, the future writers of the Final Destination series, or at least the first film, uh, they worked on a series, live action, primetime, expensive, called The 100 Lives of Blackjack Savage, which is about (coughs) Donald Trump in everything but name. Looks like him. Mm. Hotel magnate. Did a lot of TV. Wrote a book about making deals. Sounds like him. He's clearly based explicitly on Donald Trump. So we're just going to call him Donald Trump. In the early 90s, Donald Trump flees the country for tax evasion, buys a haunted mansion in the Caribbean from a wacky fascist dictator, finds out the haunted mansion is home to a, a black pirate ghost who was doomed to go to hell because he killed 100 people. The 100 people he killed were people in the slave trade, so I don't know why he's being judged so harshly on this. But in any case... Maybe there's just no... There's no quarter for murder, I suppose. Even if... Bad system. In any case, so Donald Trump, who's also apparently going to hell, has to team up with this ghost, Blackjack Savage, to save 100 souls, or they'll go to hell. And if they don't save those souls, well, they'll actually, they'll go to hell. I already covered that. But like, in order to do so, they get to use a sci-fi superboat, a la night boat. Over the course of the film, uh, Donald Trump will have to dress up as Blackjack Savage, which is never not uncomfortable. Uh, Let's see. At one point, they save Roma Downey's life uh, by pouring toxic waste into the ocean. He has to heroically bust a union. He has to, like, find the good side in multiple fascists. Michael Chiklis gets to pretend to be a black pirate. That's a thing. Also, (laughs) also, also, whenever Blackjack Savage leaves his castle or mansion Mm. or whatever, uh, he is hunted by ghosts called scrunts. I think they're called scrunts. No, that, that's that's from Lady in the Water. I forgot what they're called. I think though. they're still called scrunts. I think or whatever, oh. but uh, or grunts or whatever. 
Um, and uh, what they look like in the pilot episode, they eventually change this. Mm. They're hunted by these evil ghosts from hell that look like the back half of a rat. Yeah. Not the part with the head. <laughs> the back half. It's, it's just like flying rear claws. And in order to protect Blackjack Savage from these back rat monsters, uh, they have to use a laser that they have hooked up to Donald Trump's car. <laughs> This lasted half a season. Mm. And it was personally introduced by Michael Ovitz. Uh, uh, Eisner. Or Eisner, excuse me. Yeah, Michael I- Eisner. Eisner, not Ovitz. Michael Eisner proudly introduced this thing. Mm. Look it up. <laughs> you can find the bits on YouTube. It's one of the most incredible things we've ever found. And by sheer coincidence, we ended up reviewing that episode the week Trump was inaugurated. Yes. I swear to God, we had no idea what it was. We just thought the title sounded funny. And we were horrified yeah. by what we saw. Holy shit. Mm. Why is that not on Disney Plus? Oh, wait. Oh, wait. I think we know why that's not on Disney Plus. Why did they bury this one? I wonder why. We are determined to not let Disney bury anything. Never. We are in the Disney graveyard with our shovels. <laughs> just, just waiting for the, the night grave diggers to leave. Uh, well, in any case, thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to talk about that again. And thank you so much for writing in. We're glad you had a happy holiday. And oh, what a weird year it was. And still is. <laughs> the year's still going, weirdly. 2021 is off to an odd start, too. So No, this this is this is like the last kick of 2020. Okay. This is not 2020. This is like that yet. little period. Like, everyone likes to say, like, oh, it's the 80s were this decade. But, mm. like, the first couple of 90s were also the 80s. Like, yeah, the first, like, like 90, 90, 90, 91, 90 we're still getting 80s movies. Yeah. yeah. That's what it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here's a letter from Adelaide. Hello, Adelaide. Uh, hey, Bibbs and Whitney. Last week, someone submitted their course uh, courses film list. Oh, that oh, is yeah. more syllabi. Cool. And uh, had the fortune of being able to help design a class built around studying then fil- studying then filming shorts in the horror genre. Ooh, that's exciting. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not a master of it, so I was I'm not entirely confident in the list I have curated, and would love to hear your thoughts on what I have so far. Uh, week number one: Nosferatu for early film and silent horror. Great. Can't, can't do much worse. Nope. Uh, week number two, Night of the Living Dead. For early indie filmmaking, horror monsters and the creation of horror tropes. Okay. Uh, week number three, The Exorcist. Steaming through the, the decades here. Uh, no reason other than it's a classic. Would love suggestions if I'm missing something uh, serious. Week number four, The Silence of the Lambs for an analysis of Ted Talley's amazing screenplay. Mm-hmm. I suppose structurally, yeah, it's pretty impeccable. Uh, week five, uh, The Reanimator for comedy and horror as well as B-movie tropes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Week number six, Jennifer's Body for the power of female voices in horror. Yep, it's good. Uh, pick. Week seven, Paranormal Activity for micro-budget filmmaking and the semi-recent importance of found, the found footage subgenre. Mm-hmm. And week eight, It Follows for top-tier modern horror and discussing where horror comes from and what drives it over time. Uh, I also highly recommend a video essay from Lindsay Ellis on cultural and regional fears and how they drive horror creatures and themes. Yeah, Lindsay Ellis is a pretty good uh, yeah. YouTube essayist. Um, all of this is interwoven with uh, reading material such as Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death and, if there's time, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, I know I have a very Americanized perspective of horror. My international knowledge is singularly 2010s, and while I'd like to include the likes of Ringu, House, or a, a variety of Giallo films, I don't know what to include, hmm. and, uh, uh, and a lot I can't properly pitch. But overall, does this list look good? Are there any other films in horror fiction that would be a good supplemental addition to what is already listed? Thank you so much, Adelaide. Um, okay, so first off, thank you for that. And that's a, that's a pretty good syllabus. Um, 
the thing with the with the again any kind of syllabus like this where you're trying it's, to it's going to leave off way too much. It's going to leave just, off just a by ton. design. Yeah. yeah. Um. And uh, again, every it's always a noble effort, but you know everyone's going to have like ah, I can't believe you left off this or mm. whatever. The first thing that struck me was how you went from the silent era of, of horror. To the, to the late 1960s. 60s. Yeah, the late 1960s. And that's, there's a couple of, you know, big movements in there. Mm. Now, the horror genre, you know, I think really exploded once, uh, you know, the, the Paramount decision was in place and people were, uh, were was repeat, what the Paramount decision was in place and now a lot of independent filmmakers were flooding the marketplace with genre mm. product. Yeah. And that led to explosion of creativity, also schlock. Mm. Um, so, but we had a lot of wonderful- Schlock in the most loving possible way. Positive way. Mm. Um, but as a result, I think, um, you know, and, and of course we leaving out the universal horror films as well, yeah, the then, nuclear horror of the Hollywood in the 1950s and of course Godzilla. Um, so yeah, I feel like there's, there's definitely a couple of gaps to fill in there. I would go at least for the atmospheric monster movies. If you want to look mm-hmm. at like Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, or I know you love Dracula. I'm a big fan of Dracula. Great opportunity there. I think, um, um, yeah, I think uh, the the paranoid horror of the 1950s should not be completely ignored. Yeah. Um, again, you'll get Godzilla. This is what nuclear mm. weapons will do to us, or something like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where here's this grand mm. uh, metaphor for McCarthyism. Or I think this is 1960 actually, but yeah, uh, Village of the Damned, for oh, okay, the, yeah. which is this incredible. If you've ever seen it, the, it, that is the 63 film and not the 95. Film. I thought it was 1960, but in any case, yeah, the original. Uh, yeah. It's, it's in there. It's right there. Uh, it's if you've never seen oh, it. Look at the year. I want to get that the, right. The the John Carpenter remake. I, I think it's John Carpenter's worst film personally, but um, I, <laughs> I think it's not that great. I think he missed the point. But um, the original film. So you're is, right. It was 60. The original film is about a small town in England where everyone falls asleep simultaneously for no reason, and when they wake up, all the women are pregnant and all the children are born with like mysteriously weird eyes and psychic powers Mm. and the adults start realizing that these are not our children, Mm. which is a very particular kind of anxiety that adults can have about like, I don't see myself in my children. I don't feel connected to them. And uh, also a lot of anxieties about where the next generation is going. Um, So that would be a good one. I would think to include, Mm. I'm trying to think uh, uh, what else. Uh, I'm not seeing. I guess Reanimator kind of covers it. I'm not really seeing like the freakout horror movies, like the fun, wacky, weird ones. Like, but I guess okay. Reanimator's kind of there. Reanimator's a good example. Yeah. You, you do that. You do Evil Dead. Yeah. Uh, you, any of those would yeah. would do the grindhousey um, kind of deals. Yeah, there there was a lot of really good sort of uh, things that came out of the No Wave. Um, uh, Frank Hennelotter, of course. Yeah. Uh, I'm, of course. Um, we'll take any opportunity to bring up Frank Hennelotter's filmography. <laughs> uh, but he was also inspired by Herschel Gordon Lewis. He was another one of those early filmmakers who, to really take advantage of the fact that you could kind of get away with a lot more mm. uh, in, in horror cinema, especially if you're just pitching it to local theaters and getting away with as much as you possibly could. Yeah. So getting stuff like wizard of gore, 2000 maniacs in there. These are uh, the list you came up with is quite good, and yeah, those are all great films. And if you're uh, especially degrees, if, yeah. if you're trying to introduce people who are really unfamiliar with horror into sort of seeing the most important ones, sure. Yeah, and, and, uh, and of course, every class you, uh, would come with context. You need to talk about the greater, hmm. you know, social you know, relevance or even damage of Silence of the Lambs, for example. Yeah, or, like Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Like I said, impeccable screenplay. 
gender politics don't fly so much anymore. Yeah. Yet uh, at the time, it seemed just sort of like a plot thing. Yeah. Like a, a lot of critics weren't focusing on that. And we, mm. over as time has passed, we realized, wait a minute, there's a lot wrong with this. Yeah. Movie. And a lot of people uh, saw it at the time, and critics were overwhelmingly white and male and yeah, heterosexual and not, not, and, not yeah. writing about it. Yeah. Uh, instead of paranormal activity, I would actually suggest the Blair Witch Project. It was a bigger deal. Uh, and in, mm. But you know what? They serve the same function. They serve it's, the same it's, function. It's, it's, it's fine. They're, it, eight, they're, they're eight years apart, but yeah, they're, they're kind of the same. Yeah. Uh, in it, terms of their represented... They're both good. Representation. I, I think that's fair to say. Media. Yeah, that's... Um, that's uh, I'm not seeing... Oh, oh, yeah, like you, you said, it, it does need a lot more international mm. cinema. I wish you could pair up movies just so you could get some more yeah. in there. I mean, another thing we don't have a lot of in there mm. is uh, filmmakers of color. Mm. Um, so I would have probably at least throw in Get Out. Uh, which I think or, is very on you know pointed, yeah, um, or Ganja and Hess. Uh, that's a good one too. Uh, uh, Sergio, <laughs> do you mind not walking on things? Sergio though? is being the naughty one. This why time. are you why are you so full of energy tonight, Serge? <laughs> I'll get him. He's so cute. Um, but um, you also mentioned that you didn't you weren't super familiar with uh, the giallo genre, uh, which again for people who don't know is a genre mostly uh, Italian, although you can find other examples from other countries like Spain mm. and a few American films that are more inspired by Giallo than anything else. I would argue Scream is arguably more of a Giallo than a slasher. Um, the, the, the most Giallo American film is probably I Know Who Killed Me. Yeah. The, the, the Lindsay Lohan film. That, yeah. is, that is a Giallo through and through. If you, look at, if you look at I Know Who Killed Me through any lens other than I've seen a lot of Giallo films, mm. you're going to say that movie is awful. And if you've seen a lot of Giallo films, there's a really decent chance you're going to go, I like that. <laughs> that movie's cool. Yeah, like I, the first time I saw it, I was like, I, did, I was like kind of on its wavelength. But then, mm. yeah, after some discussions, like, wait a minute, there's actually yeah. something brilliant going on. I act, that's actually a good film but mm-hmm. um uh but anyway so a uh, giallo is an italian uh genre that combines uh detective storytelling tropes usually there's a big mystery uh but the mystery is about a serial killer and the kills are usually extremely lavish and gory and operatic uh and it was a huge influence on what americans would eventually dub the slasher genre which is a little different mm-hmm. um and i think to this day i think the best place to start is dario argento's deep red Mm-hmm. A lot of people do with Suspiria. Suspiria is not a giallo. It is made by a filmmaker who does a lot of giallo, but that doesn't make it a giallo. It's not a detective story at all. It's just really violent and Italian. That's not the same thing. Um, but uh, Deep Red is probably the best starting point for it. It's incredibly stylish. Mm. Um, it's a pretty good detective story. It's got some really good uh, twists, many of which uh, Argento would play around with multiple times. In fact, he'd already kind of done one of them before, but he kept playing with it until he felt like he got it right um but yeah that's what i would do to introduce pretty much anyone to that genre um and then for other international horror stuff um if you want to go to france something like eyes without a face yeah um that'd be a good one um let's see for japan uh i mean ringo is a good one jew on the grudge is a good one uh, some great ones from Korea as well. I'm a big fan of Into the Mirror, which didn't get a lot of play over here, although it did mm. get remade badly as a Kiefer Sutherland film. And then also the other half of the movie got remade badly into Mirrors 2. Um, <laughs> never seen that before. They just did half the movie, and not even like the first half, just did half the movie, like all the subplot in the first one, and then they took the A plot for the second one. Mm. Never seen anyone do a, do a remake that way. So fucking weird. Um... But uh, yeah, any other thoughts? Um, again, this is this is something I'd have to put like a lot of thought to. Yeah. Um, 
oh gosh yeah there, there's just too much there's to too much like, the like, horror genre is vast yeah, and we, we love we it we even talk about stuff like yeah. psycho and yeah oh yeah a lot of the uh Hollywood uh, like mainstream horror that yeah. was coming out. We didn't uh, talk about the sh- the uh, wild showmanship of William Castle. Yeah, about yeah. how you can listen. If you don't have money, you got to do something to grab mm-hmm. them. Got to do something. Yeah, yeah, that's a great technique for horror filmmakers to learn. All right, let's move on. All right, uh, here's a letter from Cody. Hello. Uh, Hello, Mr. McCool and Mr. Beast. I hope you are both well and have a happy and safe holiday. Thank you. Uh, My question is, have you ever been surprised by movies or TV shows that your parents liked? My mother, who is perfectly content watching Hallmark or Lifetime movies, likes the Gerard Butler Has Fallen movies. (laughs) And the TV show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, For my dad, I did not find this out until after he passed, but he was a big Star Trek fan. Although the only Star Trek media I watched was the Kelvin Universe Chris Pine movies, it does make me feel a little bit connected to him. I'd love to hear if you two have any similar experiences. Thanks for all you do. Sincerely, Cody. I feel like I mentioned this recently, mm-hmm. but um, my dad, who was a very kind of stiff upper lip kind of guy, mm-hmm. uh, wasn't very upfront about his emotions. Um, and a lot of the movies that he liked were like war movies mm-hmm. and movies about the Roman Empire. And he would tell you if there were any historical inaccuracies. Like, I tried to watch Gladiator with him opening day in a theater. And I'm watching the first fucking scene. It's this giant battle. Mm. And my dad just goes, just leans over to me and goes, they'd never flank like that. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Are you kidding me, dad? (laughs) You're already, he's just taken out of the movie. Ruined. Ruined for him. They called that tortoise. That's clearly Quinquinox. That is not (laughs) the kind of battle formation. In World War II uh, parlance, they call them rivet counters. People who know right, so much right. about World War II, they'll tell you if there's a wrong number of rivets on a tank. Uh-huh. And, um, bless him. Uh, but I mentioned this before, he also liked really stupid comedies. <laughs> like, one of his favorite movies was A Night at the Roxbury. That is not a good movie. It's kind of funny. It's, it's, it's got, not good. It's got a few funny lines. Yeah, they're bits That's that all I I'm like. going to say. Uh, they're bits that I like, but that movie... Killed him. Was it was it Chaz Problem Terry who played like the the growling uh, club owner in Light of the Roxbury? Uh, club owner. I don't remember. I thought the guy who keeps on talking about grabbing asses. Uh, maybe. <laughs> I think I might have been Chaz Palminteri. It's been no. a while since I've seen Night at the Roxbury, and no, I don't remember no, this, a lot of it. Okay, now I have to check this out. Because right. I, it's been a while since I've seen it, and now I feel like I'm failing my father. <laughs> um. My mom, not so much. My mom's pretty consistent. She likes old movies. Mm-hmm. Um, she likes biopics. She likes um, uh, basically anything British. Okay. She, she really, really digs. Um, but um, she always hated science fiction. She just didn't like it, didn't buy it. Fine, just yeah. found it frustrating. You know, she liked her stories to be like immersed in realism. Except one day I found out that somehow she had gotten a copy of the book, not the movie. I've never read the book of The Postman. Okay. And she thought it was great. Wow. Okay. That for some reason, that's the yeah. one that got her. And I never understood like, okay, you know, there's other good it's sci-fi done. out there. She's like, nope, I'm good. I found my one book I like. My, um, my mom is really interesting. She'll find a film that she loves and she'll watch it over and over again. Yeah. Uh, I turned her on to sneakers and she's watched that over and over. Great again. movie. Uh, she is a big fan of the first and third Indiana Jones films. Okay. Uh, mostly because, and she has openly admitted this, she thinks the boys are cute. They are. Like, like she she, li- she likes the adventure stuff as well, and she actually kind of gets into the violence, which is yeah. a little out of character but for Harrison her. Ford is hot. Sean yeah, Connery she, is she, hot. She thinks, yeah. yeah, especially in Last Crusade, that's her favorite mm-hmm. ones. Like, that has, you know, 
Harrison Ford and Sean Connery back in their, yeah. according to her, their peak. Like yeah. that's when they were, they never there's were hotter than that. There's a scene where they're tied to a chair, like together, like, hmm. Well, she never said, <laughs> she never got quite that explicit. Oh, okay. My dad is, uh, he's like a really square engineer type. Like he, he's the dad in a, like a fifties, uh, TV commercial for like soap powder. Like he's that kind of square guy. And yeah. I, and I, I mean this of course, completely affectionately. Uh, and I'm not really sure if this is in or out of character, but he's a big Sergio Leone fan. And, uh, he was really a, a big fan of, uh, the, the man with no name movies. Okay. Uh, he, uh, maintains that for a few dollars more is the best in the series. And that the that's good, a bold statement. And that the good, the bad and the ugly is the worst. He does not like that movie as much. I would love to read his essay. Two. Yeah. <laughs> Sergio, you okay, pal? Uh, pop, popular consensus is that the good, the bad, and the ugly is this unassailable Western classic, and he's not so high on that one. Sergio, what's your favorite Sergio Leone movie? It's your, it's your namesake. I'm you, sucker. <laughs> I was going to say a fish full of dollars, but okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when... Uh, when he learned of the existence of Duck You Sucker, uh, he, he thought it was just a funny title, so mm. he kept on saying it as often as he could. And then they played it at the American Cinematheque, and I took him on Father's Day. Nice. <laughs> and we watched Duck You Sucker. That's an underappreciated film. No, it's not. Oh, I like that movie, It's no? pushed off to the side for a reason. No, I think a movie's got <laughs> I, too much I, I, stuff going on. And uh, we, I've watched the first and the third and Duck You Sucker, but I still haven't seen for a few dollars more. Oh, so okay. I think, I think I need to, to watch that in honor of my father. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, but your your parents, your grandparents, the people you're related to, probably have more interesting tastes than you give them credit for. Yeah, I mean, people don't always talk about everything that they mm. imbibe. Right. You know, they all we all have rich inner worlds, and we all find ourselves like unexpectedly captivated by something that we had no idea we were interested in, mm. and then all of a sudden, oh my god, I'm going to start watching The Good Witch on Hallmark forever now. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, but I, but what I've learned honestly is that when that happens, you embrace it. You don't ever get protective and be like, oh, that's not the kind of person I am. You know, like when I like, again, when I had knee surgery and I was holed up on a couch Mm -hmm. and I found myself with nothing but the Hallmark Channel Christmas movies to keep me company. And I realized I was actually getting something out of it. I was like, well, I guess this is who I am and I love it. So there you go. A lot of people would have never thought that of me at the time. There were other channels, but uh, okay. The remote was really far (laughs) and my knee was was messed up. Okay. Okay. It was over there. What was I supposed to do? It took me like 30 minutes to walk to the bathroom. I'm not going to get up for the remote. Here's a letter from Logan. Hello, Logan. Uh, Hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. I've been listening to your podcast for the better part of two years now, and I find some of the most well-read and delightful critics uh, to hear from are you. And I appreciate both of you greatly. We appreciate you. Thank you. Oh, pshaw. Uh, to put it bluntly, 2020 was a deeply challenging and outlandish year. It felt like at every turn a new tragedy occurred or a day went wrong or a life was sadly lost. Everybody's hearts are heavy and the last 12 months have extracted quite a toll for each of us in individual ways. Sorry, in different ways. Oh, yeah. Uh, So many of those bad days and so many of these tragic occurrences, uh, these were the films released in 2020 that made those days a little bit easier to swallow. Okay. Uh, This is a top ten list. We Um, haven't gotten to ours yet, so this will be a fun little talk. I hope hope you don't don't mind me sharing some of my favorites that came out over the last year. Here it goes. Number ten, Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Hundred Quinn. Deliriously fun time, Margot Robbie is an absolute star, and Kathy Yan directed the absolute crap out of this one. I also adore the title because it feels like it was written by Harley Quinn herself. (laughs) Uh, Number nine, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. 
Yeah. 100% the Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis show. Both are terrific, are able to get so much out of the material with their performances. God, they're both so good in this movie. And uh, for being based on a play, it still manages to be rightly cinematic. A great film I recommend everyone watch. Uh, Number eight, The Five Bloods. I have plenty of Spike Lee joints to watch, but this was one that heart-pounding piece of cinema with gripping character work and unbridled vital commentary that seeks to ensure we never forget about the American black soldier and their experiences. Rest in peace, Chadwick Boseman. What an absolute legend. Uh, number seven, The Invisible Man. Nice. A fantastic edge-of-your-seat thriller that makes very good use of wide shots and slow pans. Elizabeth Moss is so great in this film that she definitely won't be nominated for an Academy Award. <laughs> a la Lupita Nyong'o and Jordan Peele's Us and Tony Collette and Ari Aster's Hereditary. Uh, that final shot, no spoilers, is one of the most liberating moments of the year in film. Number six, Borat subsequent movie film. Okay. Uh, Maria Bakalova for MVP, fingers crossed for her awards chances. Narratively and even emotionally, I think this is actually much stronger than the first film. Very much agreed. Uh, It also helps to have Bakalova's Tutar balancing out Baron Cohen's Borat. I love Baron Cohen as much as anybody, but having Bakalova to level things out is more than a benefit. And it's a potent portrait of America in 2020 that made me laugh until my sides hurt and my heart sank from disgust and sadness. That, that movie feels like they were on their way to making something just kind of more Borat again. Mm. And then shit hit the fan in the world and they had to rewrite it on the fly and they ended up making it a lot better. A lot better. Well, yeah. Uh, the commentary from the first one was, look at these kooks that we're drawing out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. And in 2020... The co- those same kooks that he was sort of poking fun at, these sort of like uh, f- the fringe of America, as it were, in mm-hmm. 2006, all of a sudden these were the people in charge. Yeah, they weren't in, and, the, they yeah, weren't in like, the woodwork. They were just out, mm-hmm. around, everywhere, just yelling all the stupid so, stuff right, that he had to like weasel out of them by accident so yeah, the, before. Yeah. The first one was very much punching down. It was mocking a fringe group. And in this one, this is actually kind of... Well, it's it's proved to be otherwise now. Exactly. But at the time, it felt a little mean-spirited. I, mm. Even though the people said really horrendous things in that movie. And I disagree with that to, take, uh, but okay. Uh, number five, Possessor. Brandon Cronenberg is the real deal. A creepy atmospheric look into how people lose their humanity and way of life by embodying the lives of those that are not their own. I hesitate to write more about this one because I feel it benefits from going in and experiencing it as blind as possible. So very, very good. Number four, Wolf Walkers. One of the best animated films I've seen in a very long time. A story of acceptance, friendship, and empathy that has some of the most beautiful imagery the year has to offer. Not to mention I have the soundtrack on repeat since seeing it. Can't recommend this one enough. Number three, First Cow. People like that cow. I love that cow. Uh, Pretty on-the-spot portrait of how capitalism... Oh, dear, naughty cats. Luca! (laughs) about how capitalism can upend those living under its infrastructure kelly reichardt's observation of a friendship trying to get by on economic progression and appreciation for one another is insanely memorable if you ever want to feel uh, simultaneously anxiety ridden and deeply relaxed (laughs) watch this movie that's a good way to describe it first cow it kind of kind of stresses you out with some of its messages but it's so understated and slow moving it kind of like slows you down a little bit uh, number two, and then we dance. Did you didn't see this one? Did you? It's uh, no, I didn't see this one. I heard it's it a, it's a Georgian film. Uh, Levin Atkins, and then we dance. It's a Georgian coming of age tale. It is a gorgeous looking, poetically played out, and uh, densely heartwarming experience. It also aptly captures young LGBTQ plus love in a way that made me, a bisexual young man, feel seen and heard. And the final scene, again, no spoilers, and that is an absolute stunner. Stunner. And number one is Soul. Ah. Uh, soul is a healthy, genuine reminder that we shall not forget to indulge in the little things amidst all the most, uh, amidst all the not so perfect events swirling around us. Uh, 
After having watched the film for the very first time, I went to work at my hometown's local grocery store, where I live. It has looked rather drab and gray outside for the last month and a half, but as soon as I got out of the car, the wind picked up, it started to snow, I felt flakes touch my tongue, and I felt the wind gust past me, I soaked in the day ahead. And then I grinned like a goofy child and took on the rest of my day with an optimistic embrace. Nice. From here out, I will live. I will love the sun shining through the trees during a bike ride. I will love the reflections of light that illuminate a saxophone. And I will love the snowflakes that gently hit the ground. Anyway, thank you for both reading my letter, my rather lengthy letter. And I wish you the most, uh, both a healthy, safe future in 2021. Yours, Logan. Uh, Logan, thank you for that. Um, yeah. No spoilers here because we haven't done our best of the year list. But I think we're going to hear... Uh, at least a few of those yeah. uh, popping up on one or both of our lists uh, when we get around to it. So I don't want to go into too much detail on that, but I will say the one thing I loved hearing about was what you got out yeah. of the movies. And I feel like that's something that we sometimes get. And I think even Whitney and I are guilty of this. We sometimes get a little hung up on the construction of it. And sometimes we just, for, you know, don't necessarily think about, like, how did it affect us? Mm. What was the ultimate end goal? And listen, we weren't huge fans of Soul. No, but we, the we, fact we both that, gave it kind of a negative review. Well, mixed anyway. Mm. And like, and I think the fact that, you know, regardless of whatever it did, mm. it left you loving life more. Mm -hmm. Well, damn, how could that not be your number one, I guess, huh? <laughs> and I think that's really important. Mm. And I think that's something that is good to remember is that whatever we see in a movie, other people see other things. And sometimes that thing can be incredibly powerful. And uh, maybe the next time we see it, we'll think about that a little bit more. And who knows? Maybe we'll like it more next time. Uh, next time I see soul, if that ever mm. comes up again, yeah. probably will at some point. Um, let's see. What else do I want to read here? Here's a yeah. letter time for two more. I think. Yeah. Uh, here's a letter from uh, Humphrey Moose. Oh, hi, Humphrey. Hello, Humphrey Moose. Uh, hello, Steve Reeves fans. <laughs> nice. uh, I was just listening to your Wonder Woman 1984 review and had some thoughts. Not disagreements, just thoughts. So cute the disagreements, uh, too. Foregrounding this with, I completely agree that the movie feels undeveloped and oddly disjointed. Also, not a comics reader, so my only real Wonder Woman experience is with these films. I've only seen the film once, but did scan the scenes for... Uh, for the below, to make sure I'm remembering correctly. Um, the nature of the Amazons. Whitney has an odd concept of power fantasy, one that involves being lazy. Just pointing out that <laughs> my, my criticism of, of uh, it's like if, if you have superpowers and you're naturally super strong, why do you want, why do you have to train and lift weights? Why, why like, would you play you? in the Olympics? Yeah, and I was like, like, I don't know, it's the Olympics, they're fun. But yeah, it's like, it would be so easy. Wouldn't that be boring for you? Wouldn't you have better things to do with your time? I, I, I think, I think, uh, you, I think you, you're you about to get shown your whole ass. Oh, fine, fine. <laughs> my, like, my ass is never in. It's, it's <laughs> just paraded on my head. Um, uh, just pointing out that many power fantasies involve working hard to attain power and a goal. For many people, it's not just the fantasy of power, but the fantasy that you'd have the discipline to achieve it. Fair. Uh, and why why do all uh, why do we assume all Amazons are stronger than normal people? What we see in the film is an auditorium filled uh, with quote normal. Amazons. This is a competition not unlike our Olympics. So in a society of enhanced people, why wouldn't there be athletes that are better or more talented or train harder than normal people? The sports scene slash competition, when Diana falls off the horse, what I saw was that she couldn't catch up, so she would lose, but then she finds an old slash forgotten aqueduct type of structure and slides down, missing her target, likely from ignorance. If a biathlon competitor skips a target, I'm sure they lose. But I 100% agree that the dialogue at the end of the sequence does not convey whatever message they meant to convey. Did she cheat or was it an accident? It's very, it's yeah. not, it's, it's not, not established it's not very clear, well. Yeah. Uh, there's a, is that the end of that one point? 
Uh-huh. Um, there's a I, before I get distracted from it. There's something in Marvel Comics that they used to have, and I would love them to bring it back. It would make such a good like Disney Plus show. Uh-huh. It was called the Unlimited Class Wrestling Federation, <laughs> and the idea was oh, really no. simple. In the Marvel Cinematic <coughs> in the Marvel just universe in the comics, yeah. there were a ton of people with super strength, right? Like a ton. So what if they wrestled? <laughs> So someone actually like started a uh, started a wrestling league, and a lot of it was like you know former bad guys like the armadillo. Like he really wasn't that bad, but he was like super strong and had a good personality. So and like Titania, and like I think the thing was in it even for like publicity purposes. And like that's a great idea for anything. I would love that. What a wonderful idea for super, a show. Super powered wrestling movie. Yeah, or or TV or, show, or TV or whatever. Series. Who cares? But like, yeah. They're, it's fun. Mm. They're not going to hurt each other. They're nigh invulnerable. <laughs> so, and it could be totally awesome. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, I hope someday they do that. Anyway. Uh, anyway um, oh, there's a lot more here. Um, okay. Diana and Barbara. Since it's 1984, Barbara asking if it was a guy uh, who could be her, could, it was a guy could be her finishing to gauge Diana's sexuality. I read crazy queer energy in their relationship early on in the film, especially as Barbara's wish manifested. I think Diana was interested in non-wish Barbara and she was disappointed in Barbara's flirting with Pedro Pascal. Also, Diana, if she is immortal, may not think 70 years is a long time to go between lovers. We, we addressed that. We said that if, if you live forever, there's, no you, reason you might as well pine quick. Yeah. yeah yeah actual loves not fickle infatuation uh the movie clearly demonstrates she does not like and avoids generic male attention so it stands to reason that she doesn't care to engage and would not have fallen in love you know it's also a sort of thing where if you look at people over a long enough because again when we talk about immortals hmm. you know dracula highlander whatever you want to do um we're all just speculating no one lives that long no, you know, like who's who's to say that like let's say you have one love of your life, you you marry them or you don't or whatever, mm. and then you know you live on for two hundred years. Mm. For all you know, maybe that was the only person. Yeah, you ever really felt a deep connection with? Well, how sad would that be? Wouldn't you pine if after all that time that was the one person you felt you really connected to? That would well, make you well, feel extra lonely. My, and who's well, to say you didn't try? Like maybe yeah, she went well. out on a date sometime and it just sucked, and she's like. Eh, I don't need to. I just missed this other guy. My complaint is that when screenwriters try to write immortal characters, they never think on a broad enough timeline. Yeah. You're immortal. Like, you'll be alive in 4,000 years. Yeah. What does it matter that, you know, you know you're know, you dating these people who only live, like, maybe a century? Mm. It's like, okay, you you get do that. You pine. You You'd live get over longer, it eventually, you get yeah. over it eventually, you do yeah. that again, you do it, you know, the cycle will repeat. But the first time would be the hardest. I, I suppose so. But it is her first love. I suppose so, but yeah. 70 years, she, you know, her mind lives at the same speed as, as ordinary people. And again, what so. I'm saying is, who knows, maybe she had a couple of, mm -hmm. you know, attractions, whatever, dates or whatever, yeah. and it just wasn't clicking. So she said, screw it, I'll focus on my career for the next All few right. decades. Uh, as to Diana's powers draining, I just assumed Diana's lack of honesty with herself about the cost of the witch, essentially killing a dude to revive Steve, is what is impacting her power, not the stone or the wish proper, but her own lack of truth in purpose and morality. Um, um, maybe. I got, maybe. A, I got an interesting debate on Twitter with mm. someone uh, a while ago. We were talking about um, Spider-Man 2, which I consider to be a great movie. And they mm. said it sucked. And one of the things uh, they said sucked. Well, one of the things they said sucked about it was the idea that uh, Peter was losing his powers for psychosomatic reasons. You know, through stress, anxiety, yeah, guilt. That, that's how it. 
That's how I thought it, right? That, that's then, exactly that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, and they said that's that's stupid. It's biology. You can't lose that. And I'm like, no, that's a thing. Well, first of all, we're dealing with a fantasy. The rule, true, yeah. But beyond that, even if we do want to take it literally, stress, anxiety. These, I know people who have gone like just through stress. They've gone blind for a while. Like, hmm. actually, like, they've lost their yeah. vision. You, that shouldn't just turn off. That actually happens. Like, you actually, like, your mind and your body are directly connected. And they were just like, yeah, but, like, shouldn't he be able to use his sticky powers so that stuff's on his hand? And I'm like, look, it, it, dude, clearly he's consciously able to use it, so he should be conscious, subconsciously able not to. Hmm. So... Yeah, it might be a subconscious thing, but I just don't think the movie explores that very well. It doesn't really... Wonder Woman, anyway. Wonder Woman mm. doesn't feel like it's exploring this ethical quandary because the plot kicks in so fast. We don't really get to focus on her being untrue to herself. She's too busy trying to fix everyone else's problems and mm. then saying goodbye in an alleyway. I don't think it comes across very well. Mm. Uh, oh, uh, anyway. Um, Sorry, I got off on a rant. Uh, Barbara and her assailant. Man, this is dicey. To be clear on my broad position, the dude is slime and the violence to defend him herself is justified. I do see some nuance, though. I judged the movie uh, early on for Diana not doing more about that specific scumbag because the thieves stealing from the black market dealers got arrested and were just thrown in jail, but the erstwhile assaulter is just fine on the ground. In 1984, the justice system might not slash probably wouldn't judge this scumbag harshly, and the scumbag isn't learning his lessons even when being physically stopped by Diana, so there is a gap here. And justice is hard to find, and Barbara's initial response to physically hurt him feels very justified. But Barbara was going to kill him, seemingly in a blood revenge sort of way. While she didn't seek him out, she turned around and decided to seek out confrontation. And the only reason she stopped from killing him is because her friend asks her what she's doing. Uh She doesn't defend her choice by acknowledging the morality of, for instance, saying that he is a rapist or a predator. She simply tells the man uh, for not, tells the man to not ask, refusing to acknowledge the potential moral issue that she confronted in wanting to kill a man. In that moment, uh, she refuses to confront herself. She is a predator similar to the scumbag. She knows she can get away with this. She's already kicked out several teeth, kicked him so hard he's flown 10 to 15 feet multiple times, similar to a 30... 30 mile per hour impact from a car. She is willing to impose her physicality over someone weaker than her because she can, not because she's doing it for someone else. She also says, mind your business, which has this ominous overtone of what sexual assault perpetrators have been known to say in the real world to deflect attention from their actions. Mm. Given all the above, the world she lives can't slash won't give her justice. So she has to gain it herself. I have a hand. I have a hard time of being against her. It's, it's, our, our criticism of that scene wasn't that uh, what she was doing was morally repugnant. It's that the movie clearly thinks it is. Yeah, that's uh, the problem. Is yeah. that it's, it, this is seen as okay. Let's 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 remove all context for a second and just look mm. at what the baseline purpose of that scene is. Mm. The purpose of that scene is Barbara has gotten her wish. She has mm. gotten to be more like Diana. She is confident. She is popular. And even though she didn't plan for this, she has superpowers. Okay. Now, in order to get the character where you need her to go, there needs to be a point where she goes on a dark path. Mm. So how are we going to, let's just say this is the only problem you got to solve. What's one scene we can do that shows her turning villainous? Yeah. Now, was there any reason why, in order to convey that plot point, you needed the audience to sympathize with someone who was trying to commit sexual assault? 
Because mm. that's ultimately what you're saying here is that, oh no, that poor person who attacked yeah. her and tried to on multiple occasions do that. Already, you've gone down a bad yeah. path so, because yeah. you're asking the audience to, simp to empathize or feel bad for the victim in that situation. And yeah, she beats the ever-loving crap out of him. And she should beat the ever-loving mm. crap out of him. And I think it's a really bad message to send to people to say, if you beat the crap out of somebody who is trying to attack you, you could be the bad guy. That is not true. Yeah, yeah. Be if someone tries to attack you, beat the crap out of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it was actually sort of a liberating moment. It should have been played as a very heroic moment where yeah. she finally has the strength to get back at this man who she did not have the strength to fight, to uh, confront before. Yeah. Uh, if she had killed the guy that mm -hmm. would that's what we said in our review that would have been a really dark moment mm -hmm. that's going too far she and we, we committed can, murder we can sympathize street. but yeah, yeah and, and i know some people actually interpreted that scene as she did and i'm like no watch no, it again he's moving at he, the he's alive he's still alive yeah, at the he, end he got and, the uh, shit kicked out of him but yeah. he's okay like if she if if it was like really explicit like she leaned down and like pulled his head from his body yeah, or that you would, hear like yeah. a snap or something yeah. like that that would have been clearly okay she just or, went to you know or if it was a, like a different guy who was not assaulting her, but yeah. like said something a little bit untoward or like mm. did something similar to the guy who assaulted her in the park. And she turned around and beat that guy up. Even that then, would have been shown. Even yeah. then it's weird because again, you're dealing with, everyone assumes that like when, it, when they defend this scene, I'm not saying this is exactly what this person's doing, but yeah. I've seen a lot of people try to defend this scene and they assume that Barbara is in a rational state of mind. Yeah. She's had a traumatic experience like the night before, two nights tops. I'm trying to remember the exact chronology. It's only been a couple, it's only been a little bit of time since someone tried to assault her in the park. Hmm. Then she runs into that guy again. I don't care that you now kind of maybe have superpowers because you broke your fridge. She doesn't know that she's the cheetah. All she knows is that here's someone who tried to attack her and she musters up the gumption to confront that guy. And tell him to stop doing it. And when he tries it again, she punches him mm -hmm. and then punches him a few more times because, yeah. <laughs> so that is, she, she's going through a trauma response here. This is actually something where she is not necessarily thinking to myself, I've beat him up enough. It's fine. Right. I've served my point. I am completely objective in this situation. She's not there. She's not there. At all. And again, even then, even if you do have that scene where she does kill him, again, you didn't need to make that guy someone who instantly doesn't have our sympathy. It muddies the scene. Yeah. yeah. It and makes the, that plot point not really function very well because you're still going to have people who are more on her side than his because, again, that guy is someone who really exists hmm. and Cheetah is not. Right. And that's something that is, I think, very, very important to point out mm -hmm. here, where you're, a lot of people are going to have a very visceral, real-life response to this. Yeah, that, that, this is what I was hoping uh, Girl in the Spider's Web was going to be. Mm -hmm. Like this kind of vigilante fantasy. Yeah. You know, this, this woman just kicking the crap out of you know, creepers and, and assaulters. Yeah. Uh, movie didn't go that way. It no, just, it started it just, out that way. The, the, the first scene is awesome in that movie. Yeah, the rest it just of the got movie, really excited. The rest of the movie is a big pizza dump. Um, I, I, I liked it more than you did, but yeah, it, it would have been better with, with that <laughs> anyway, approach. Anyway, but, um, uh, but Humphrey Moose goes on to say... Real, real fast, uh, okay. I just want to say one quick more thing about that. A lot of other superheroes have done exactly that thing and no one gave him any crap. Spider-Man killed a guy. 
Dude killed Spider-Man's uncle. Spider-Man kills that guy. I mean, it was kind of an accident, but he did it. Yeah. So who's to say even if she had killed her attacker in Wonder Woman 1984, she would have gone, oh, I feel bad about that. And maybe it would have actually, like, you know, Wonder Woman tried to kill a guy. In, oh. uh, in, uh, didn't she? I think she actually killed a guy at the end of Wonder Woman, didn't she? If, if you believe Zack Snyder. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody using the microwave over in. Yeah. Who, who is that over there? Who, who, the microwave. Is, who is this over here right now? Who's sneaking around in the kitchen? A bisexual uh. in search of hot tea. Woo! By that I mean the truth. <laughs> and tea. Well, hey, I'm drinking tea too. Uh, yeah. I'm drinking iced tea. <laughs> It's a tea party. Woo! Uh-huh. Uh, we're, we were just talking about Wonder Woman 1984 and that scene. Is this oh, all going God. in the podcast? Yeah. Wow. Uh, this is all going. I've, I've seen no reason to cut it yet. <laughs> what a time to walk in. Yeah. Yeah. I was watching this scene with Michelle and we both had the same reaction. We were just like, the fuck is this? I, this is the scene where Cheetah beat up the guy who was trying to rape her, right? Yeah. Mm. And the idea that it was trying to be used as her villainous sort of turn. That was offensive. Yeah. The whole scene is offensive. Um, I'm going to be gut honest and say it triggered the fuck out of me because I have been sexually assaulted in the past. Uh, that's bullshit. You just, they just made a film that frames people who have been sexually assaulted <laughs> as villains for not taking it. Yeah. That is really hideously offensive, and the people who wrote this and made this need to sit in a fucking corner and have a good long look at themselves and see what kind of dark, messed up, evil, shitty decisions they've made in their lives to write that kind of evil in. Yeah. And again, you know, a lot of people are just saying, oh, it's because she took it too far. Uh, No, he was trying to attack her. And for all we know, he could have killed her if if he wanted to. If someone tries to rape you, for all you know, that person is trying to kill you. That is straight up like, you know, wow, okay, that person is trying to kill me. That's the line they crossed. Yeah. You know? And that sort of assault, that Mm -hmm. sort of attack, that invasion of space, of body... Mm -hmm. It's basically knit of the same fucking sweater. It's yeah. the same mm. thing. And the idea you know, that like, oh, this is different. She had superpowers. It's like that doesn't have any real world consequence. Oh, like he cared. He didn't know about a, that. A, he, he didn't tried give a shit. to rape her. Yeah. And but here's the thing is that even if even, again, we got to look at who's watching this movie. Kids. Yeah. Yeah. Is that really the message you want to tell kids? Yeah, and, like, if someone the, tries to attack you, don't fight back too hard. Because then you become yeah. the bad guy. That's horrible. Children cosplay as Wonder Woman. And you just said, it's bad when Cheetah uh, stood up to a fucking mm. rapist. That is why I'm saying this is evil. This is, yeah. like, my big problem. Y'all put out a really bad message in a movie for kids. Mm. Yeah. That is evil. Mm-hmm. And that's the tea. And I'm going to go that's with my tea. cup of hot tea <laughs> into the other room. That's good tea. Okay, clink there. Yeah. All right. Clink, baby. All right. See ya. <laughs> Said it before. I'll say it again. She's a better critic than I am. Uh, There's more in this letter. Should I continue? By the way, Michelle has uh, written an amazing book uh, uh, called uh, Hooker. That is about a uh, vigilante fighting a misogynistic serial killer in the 1980s. Uh, it is pro-queer, pro-sex work. Uh, it is uh, uh, feminist. It is awesome. And it is available now in uh, various bookstores. 
Moving on. Sorry, we got off on a thing. Uh, no, it's fine. This this addresses everything that was yeah. in the letter. Um, uh, next bullet point on this letter feels a little uh, almost yeah. churlish to go back at this point. Uh, Barbara's physical transformation. I don't read that she got a second wish, but it was the physical manifestation of her continued descent into her amoral, predatory nature. I never read that she made another wish since she never touches Pedro. But there's a line of dialogue to the effect of, I'll give you another one. He does. He, he implies that, yeah. that. And then when he gets more power, he like shoves it off to her, which I didn't think you. I thought there needed to be a transaction, which kind yeah. of breaks the rule of that. Regardless, regardless of that. And I'm, I'm, this is if this was the only problem with the movie, I'd be fine with it. Here's the thing I don't get. Hmm. Why is she a cheetah? She, she wanted to be more like Diana. Diana's not a cheetah. Is it just because she wanted to be more like Diana's shoes in that one shot? It, that that was it. It's the like one she, thing. Like she was wearing some some leopard print, you know, bold print. I think it was it's cheetah like, print actually. But yeah, yeah, it was, it was cheetah print. Okay, yeah, leopard cheetah. Spot, Whatever. Yeah, cat print. Cat print. And throughout the the rest of the movie, she started like wearing more and more cat print on her body. So she started feeling feline, I suppose. Yeah. How is everyone feline tonight? Ha. <laughs> Um, I, I don't understand it. It's, 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 <laughs> it's pretty thin. It's a it's hastily written movie. Yeah. Um, I did read from the movie that Pedro altered the terms of the wish, getting more in exchange for the cost, not a new wish, but a refinement. Mm, Again, this I think is we're not the movie's biggest problem. Point. Yeah. This is not the movie's biggest problem. Uh, just Fair some enough. thoughts. I know this is long. I hope you get a chance to read this. I, uh, if you want to address part of this, but not all of it in a mailbag, this light will be read. Oh, too well, late. too late. Uh, <laughs> Uh, hopefully you don't get a lot of crap from scumbags who say that sexual assault is okay. Thank uh, you. My best, Jens Humphrey Moose. And for the record, Humphrey Moose, we weren't accusing you of anything. We were talking oh, goodness, about the larger man. conversation mm. of this, and it brings up a whole can of worms, and because it's triggering. And so people are really, really passionate about this. And frankly, I'm surprised the bigger deal wasn't made out of it. I know a lot of people who had this reaction, mm. but I'm surprised it wasn't a bigger deal. Um, and... Yeah, I, I gotta tell you, it really put me off of the movie. And I'm okay with weird superhero movies that don't have, like, you know, consistent rules. I mean, sometimes mm. I complain about it, but, like, as long as they're in the spirit of good fun, yeah. I don't really care. I might nitpick, but I don't care. Well, so, something like, about all those Marvel movies is we we never really get a gauge on, like, some of some of what these people can do. Like, yeah. like what is Thor's superpower what do you, what does he have he's got he's super strong he's super strong he's got a magic hammer so that hammer uh, has its own thing yeah like he can like can flies back so to him he, and he, he can like he, it can it can help him fly yeah, like he has yeah. access to this magical object and, uh, and, and he has lightning powers that's basically it and and but also he's invulnerable because he like takes that a lot comes, of damage that typically comes with like super strength like your muscles are so dense so you think he's like an ordinary person just with extraordinarily dense muscles? Also, he, also he lives forever. Like yeah, li- like, he lives forever. His well, bones not literally, can't but bro- like, he, he's not human. He's got like alien yeah. physiology or yeah. god physiology. Yeah, it, it's always been a little unclear to me, like what what he can and cannot do. Well, try getting to the Scarlet yeah. Witch sometime. What yeah, can it's the Scarlet like, Witch do? I don't know stuff. Like that's all they've ever really had. <laughs> she she throws red stuff and also has like. Force shields? When they introduced the character in Age of Ultron, they literally just gave up. Right at the beginning, it said, she's weird. Yeah, That's it. That's she, the line. He's like, fast, she's weird. They got, That's it. They got, like, red clouds that can do whatever she wants, essentially. Yeah. She can mm. She can basically alter reality. And I'm sure they'll address this in that Disney Plus show. I'm sure they will. That I'm not going to watch, because I don't uh, really care. <laughs> I'll probably watch it. I yeah. like Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen. They're fun. I, I like Paul Bettany, but he, he is not peerless. No, uh, fair enough. Yeah. Did you see Priest? Actually, I never saw a priest. Or, 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 uh, or what was or that vampire? Legion. Legion. That was the vampire. No, one. it was not a vampire. It was angels. Priest was the vampire one. P- priest was the vampire one. Legion was the Legion angel was one. the angel one. Were they? 
I heard they looked from the trailers like the same film. They're the same movie. They just released it twice. <laughs> they just put another title on the front. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, uh, but yes, again, the Wonder Woman thing, it's a very passionate subject for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and again, just really surprised it wasn't a bigger deal. Uh, but again, Humphrey Moose, thank you for your email. Mm-hmm. And, and again, your, your observations were completely understandable. Uh, we just think that they're kind of besides the point. Mm-hmm. And I think the underlying base point is more problematic than that. Yeah. Um, okay, um, let's move on. Let's uh, let's wrap this up with okay. B. Peterson's 100 uh, letter. This is, yeah, 100 of 100, the final letter from B. Peterson. Uh, Ever? Not, uh-huh. no, no, just as the final letter. Okay. Maybe we'll still hear from them. Okay. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Albin. First, uh, Albin is spelled uh, B-R-F-X-X-C-C-X-X-M-N-M-N-P-C-C-C-L-L-L-M-M-N-P-R-X-V-C-L-M-N-C-K-S-S-Q-L-B-B-1-1-1-6. Why? Because we like you. No, well, it, yeah. this this was, uh, I remember when this news story broke. It's what a Swedish couple once submitted in 1996 as their child's name oh. in protest to Sweden's naming laws. Oh. It's pronounced Albin. <laughs> I didn't yeah. remember that at all. That's hilarious. All right. This is the 100th letter for, for 2020. Assuming you will read both this and the 99th letter, then you'll have answered 18 of the 100 letters I sent. Okay. That's well, about, now I feel like an asshole. That's about one out of five, which <laughs> ain't bad. That's not great. Well, well I mean. We want other people to write it. We want other lot. people to and, write yeah, it. That's and, what it boils And I do have to yeah. skip over a lot of letters. I want yeah. a lot of people to understand. We get a lot of letters. And yeah. I, I read, uh, I try to read a good cross section yeah. of what we get. Um, yeah. And we apologize yeah. if we don't get to yours. We yeah, really, really do. Sure. And again, if it's super important, please flag us or something, send us a tweet or something like that. And we'll yeah. try to make sure that we, we do, but you know, we, we, we get a lot. So yeah. yeah, there are of course over 80 letters you didn't read, but don't worry about that. It's, this is not just my last letter of the year. It's the last for the foreseeable future. As I have other things to focus on. We'll get to that in a second. Attached to this email is a PDF containing all 100 letters, color-coordinated, based on which ones were answered, green, which were <laughs> which were worth answering in the future, blue, and if they were part of a series of letters, including one about David Lynch's films. If you ever feel like reading one, it'll be my honor. So we now have a backlog of, oh my of God. B. Peterson's that, 100 they should, letters. They should all be published like that book, Dear Mr. Henshaw. There you go. <laughs> mm, there you go. Uh, now here's here's a, where I do a shameless plug. Tomorrow on January first, I guess it's written on a little late. Sorry Eve, about that. My podcast network launches. It's Yay! Called the screens margins, and it's all about films and filmmakers that too often go under under discussed. There will be two free weekly podcast series: one dedicated to the Frederick Weis- Frederick Wiseman's films. And one to new releases. There will also be three Patreon exclusive series, or perhaps four. We'll see how it goes. Oh no! B. Peterson is imitating us. Don't uh, imitate us too hard. It yeah. can really. Your hair you know, you know, don't don't have to have that much content. No, no, no. Um, Keep, make sure you're, you're working within your your yeah. means because it's hard. <laughs> That'll be less frequent, but hopefully just as good. I have three great courses. Uh, Harold Urteaga from Austin and a campion from New York City. And yes, Mark Edward Hoyk from your neck of the woods. Yay. I hope that you'll find it to be of some value as your work's inspired it all. And I know how incredibly busy you both are. I just wanted to say you're both welcome to come on as guests anytime. Oh, I'd love to. Oh, that'd be a a deep honor. Yeah. Uh, What else is there to say? Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, It's really pointless to try to put into words how you've affected my life because you two have influenced me in in a way maybe few dozen people on earth have. William, your openness and vulnerability is powerful and invaluable in this line of work. Whitney, your relentless refusal to submit or even approach mainstream consensus is likewise (laughs) essential. You're both terrific critics, and most importantly, you're both good folk. It's been a long, rough year. I'm glad I could spend so much of it with you. Thank you, and I'll see you when I see you. B. Peterson, uh, and and here's the PDF of of all of all of oh my God. all 100 letters. Do me a favor, forward that to me. Absolutely, um, I will. 
to B. Peterson and frankly to every single person who has been listening to us, especially throughout 2020, but in general, mm-hmm. um, life is hard even at the best of times. And we are incredibly grateful that you allow us to join you for it, even if it's just on your commute or while you do your dishes or whenever you listen to your podcasts. Um, we know we put out a lot of podcasts. We would love it if you listen to all of them, but we do not expect you to. Mm-hmm. Um, so any amount of time that you are willing and indeed happy to spend with us uh, means the world to us. And this is one of my favorite shows that we do because we get to hear what you're going through, how you're responding to movies, how your interests are falling through, how the world mm. is affecting you right now. And look, it's it's it, listen, it's a lonely year. We've all been isolating mm. for so much of it that, you know, any kind of connection is means a lot. Mm. Film is not about just shooting the shit about movies, film criticism, talking about movies. And the reason we do a lot of these podcasts is to keep a conversation going. And it's not a conversation if it's just you and me. I mean, it's a conversation between you and me, but it's also out to you, to anybody who's listening. Hearing back from you, getting you part of the conversation is what completes this podcast. Yeah, our podcast sucks before we started doing letters. It's it's kind of the reason we're critics. We can't be complete critics unless we hear from you and have you listening. Yes, thank you for saying that, yeah. And... uh, that we can hear from you directly and that we can answer you and continue the conversation and change tone and timbre has made us better critics. So we're just incredibly grateful that we are in a position where we can interact with you as often as we do. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Like, again, you know, we, we all have our uh, perspectives and our spheres and being able to uh, read more about yours mm-hmm. and how it directly relates to and sometimes conflicts with what we do. Like even if we like read your email and we say, well, I disagree for a million reasons. And then we move on. I do listen to every single one. And every single time I think to myself, am I wrong? Or am I, or is there something like I'm missing here? And often there are like a lot of correspondence we've had over the years has completely uh, in a very significant way affected the way that I view a movie, movies mm. as a whole, the world. They, they, you never know who is going to change your life yeah, in some way. We're we're critics. We take criticism seriously. We have to. That means we take your criticism seriously. Uh, of us, of our opinions, of movies. We have we listen to every point of view. Uh, like we said, we may disagree. We may yeah. say we openly disagree. But we have to consider uh, the possibility yeah, that if, it's that it's 100% correct. And yeah, and if you're willing to fly in my face about climax, I'm willing to listen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like I said, I responded to how gross that movie was. I'll watch it again. Maybe I won't like it. Yeah. Maybe, or, well, I mean, I've never liked it really, but maybe yeah. I'll, I'll maybe see. Maybe you won't respect it so much. Exactly. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll sort of jibe with the ugliness that so many people have pointed, you and B. Peterson and others as well have sort of pointed out to me. Mm-hmm. It's a device that's since, since I've seen it too. I didn't have yeah. sort of that perspective going in. So. Yeah. No, and again, you know, a lot I, of I times responded, I responded a little differently. Look, a lot of times movies are, are affected by what you walked mm-hmm. in with that day. Yeah. yeah. And that's 100% valid, but it's not necessarily how you're going to feel the rest of your life. It might've only been how you felt that day. Mm. Um, so yeah. So again, thank you B Peterson. And seriously, everyone, Everyone uh, who 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 has enjoyed B. Peterson's um, emails and also uh, their uh, guest appearances on our shows, 
Um, we highly recommend you check out the screen's margins. That There's a lot of really interesting stuff over there. We know that a lot of the people who listen to our shows are people who are excited about cinema that isn't just the mainstream franchises. Mm. And we like those too, some more than others, but <laughs> we, we do like talking about them and we do think they're significant, yeah. but we think that they dominate so much of the conversation that there's not a lot of like room left over for a lot of people to dedicate the time mm. to talk about, for example, the films of Frederick Wiseman. So that someone is trying to fill these niches, I mean, that's what Whitney and I have been trying to do a lot of the time. Like, mm. we're trying to find a way to, you know, we created a podcast that was all about TV's failures. Everyone was talking about the successes. Mm. No one was talking about the shit that failed and is gone. Like, we wanted to talk about it. And we knew when we started, that might be a really small audience of people who actually <laughs> give a shit about that. We had a lot of people, like, we pitched this idea to people and they were like, that's a stupid idea and no one would listen to mm. it. Wrong. It's maybe a smaller audience than some of the bigger shows out there, but there's a lot of people who do care about the stuff that a lot of shows just don't focus on. And when we create those shows, we reveal what kind of audiences there are uh, for these people who otherwise, a lot of people will roll their eyes and go, oh, why would there be a whole podcast dedicated to know, cancel too soon shows, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so... Yeah, we highly encourage everyone who, first off, every single person who listens to our shows who wants to start their own show and podcast, we encourage you to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Please, please do. We need more voices out there. And uh, and if you can, again, if you can do something that other people aren't doing, all the better. Hmm. Um, so please check out the Screen's Margins. Check out their shows. Please check out their Patreon uh, if you can afford to sign up. Obviously, that would help. And we want to give a very special thank you to all of our listeners. Um, if you want to join our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Um, and uh, yeah, we have a lot of exclusive shows on there. You can also vote for future episodes of our various podcasts. Uh, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm still at Whitney Seibold. And of course, you can write into this show every week. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address. We would love to hear from you. And again, we read as many as we can while still having a real conversation about every single one. And uh, we'll never catch up. Mm. We can't pretend we will. <laughs> yeah. Never yeah. going to happen. We, but we try really hard to stay on top of them. Yeah. Uh, so thank you, everybody. Again, this show took a little bit of a break because of the holidays, but it's back along with all our other shows. And uh, we're looking forward to a really productive, satisfying, healthy, positive year. So... Um, I'm not going to look at Twitter for the rest of the year. <laughs> That's, not <true. laughs> That's not true. But uh, we're going we're gonna to do our best, and we're going to make 2021 a hell of a lot better than 2020 somehow. Uh, so again, thank you, everybody. Uh, please stay safe and sane. And sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>